Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby with Consultant 360. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Sandrock, who is a pulmonary critical care and infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at the University of California, Davis in Sacramento, California. Today, he joins us to share his thoughts on the causative agents of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, as well as how patient characteristics contribute to treatment options and patient outcomes. Let's listen in. So what are the typical causative bacterial organisms of CABP? Yeah, so the, you know, with community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, obviously the definition then in there is bacterial. So we're going to focus in on the bacterial agents um, for now and not look at the uh, viral and fungal. But when we look at the bacterial component of things, um, there is a little bit of variability when we're on the outpatient side and the inpatient side, both severe and non-severe inpatient. Um, the far, far and away, the number one organism is Streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus. That's really the biggest bacterial agent that we tend to see across all areas. Um, Haemophilus influenzae, which is a gram negative, a small sort of comma-like gram negative when seen on gram stain, that also plays a big role both in the um, ICU, non-ICU, and the outpatient world as well. Um, and but this is where things change a little bit. So when we look at the outpatient side, the atypicals, mycoplasma, chlamydia, they tend to play a bigger role in the outpatient world. They can also play a little bit of a role in the inpatient side, but generally not in the severe component. From the atypical side, we often see Legionella playing the largest role on our inpatient and our hospitalized side when we focus on then the atypicals. And then lastly, particularly because, you know, a post-viral bacterial pneumonia plays um, a big role in the number of admissions we see, particularly in the winter months, is Staphylococcus aureus or Staph aureus. So whether it's MSSA or MRSA, that tends to rear its ugly head. Um, sometimes when people are admitted on the inpatient side, but definitely in the ICU side, so that's kind of the slight differences you see. So certain atypicals are more common as outpatients. Uh, Legionella is more common on the inpatient side. We see staph aureus in the severe, which we don't often see in the outpatient side. But regardless of that, streptococcus pneumoniae and haemophilus influenza, and to a lesser degree, more axilla uh, cateralis, they tend to play the real big role across the board for the bacterial side. Um, so how are the causative organisms identified and what diagnostic tools are available for that? Yeah, so the, so the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, you know, obviously you're going to look at symptomology. You're going to get chest radiography when indicated, um, showing either a low bar or non-low bar patchy, you know, alveolar infiltrates. So that, that sort of comes with it. But identifying the organisms, this is always an interesting discussion because if you read the, you know, the um, ATS-IDSA guidelines from 2019, there's not a big push for the identification of these organisms, uh, particularly in the outpatient setting. Once you get to the inpatient setting, uh, most notably in the ICU, those are generally recommended. The easiest way to do it is just old school. You get yourself a, a you know great sputum culture, or if they're intubated and you do it via bronchoscopy, those are certain ways to um, you know by culture and uh, developing sensitivity. That's the easiest way to generally do it. Um, there are other diagnostic tools available. So there obviously are urine antigens, whether we're looking at Legionella or uh, strep pneumonia. That's one option that's available. Um, and there are other rapid testing um, where we can just look at PCR and other antigen-based testings, but no notably PCR testing on the sputum that can look at some of these causative agents. And, you know, each of them have their pluses and minuses. The big impact and the big discussion we have is when we 
look for these causative organisms. How does it change our therapy? And very often it may not change our therapy. On the severe side, it might because our coverage for Staph aureus, for example, would change. But you know, on the outpatient side, is it really gonna change our therapy or mild inpatient inhibition? Maybe not. Um, I think where it does change therapy is not so much what bacterial agent does it have, but is it bacterial or viral? That will change our therapy because if this appears to be viral, we're not gonna give antimicrobials in these cases. So I think those are really the best uh, best way to sort of look at the bacterial side. And I obviously left out all the viral testing because we're just focusing on the bacterial side, but those are another, another side of things as well. Perfect, perfect. I think that it was a great overview. Um, next, can you talk about some instances when additional workup is warranted? Yeah, so, you know, this idea of looking for causative organisms in an extensive workup in a CAP patient, um, you know, looking for bacterial causes um, is often not started initially, but there are some red flags when additional workup is warranted. So, for example, in the more critically ill, that's where you may want to actually take a look and see, um, you know, if this is staph aureus, and we mentioned that before. Um, some patients will come in with community-acquired pneumonia that tends to be a bit more persistent, persistent or recurrent. Um, so examples there, maybe we start looking for other additional structural lung disease or pulmonary issues that may, you know, uh, lead to that recurrence. So for example, things such as bronchiectasis, do they have a large mass where this is presenting a post-obstructive pneumonia? And then from there, the other areas which are really relatively clear where workup is warranted is if this is a new pleural effusion associated with pneumonia. So if they come in, they have a bacterial pneumonia, there's a new pleural effusion, that's something that's going to need to be tapped or have a thoracentesis performed, evaluated if it is infected or is an empyema. So this is a parapneumonic effusion or it's an empyema repeat drainage, um, you know, and certainly chest tube placement if indicated is going to be um, warranted. And that also, if this is a pleural effusion or a complicated parapneumonic effusion or an empyema, that's going to change your antimicrobial therapy as well, uh, most notably the length of that therapy. So I think those um, are certainly um, warranted. And then lastly, there's a number of patient characteristics, which we'll talk about in a, a second. But, you know, if they're immunocompromised, if they're a patient who's, you know, has an ANC of zero, um, if they're, you know, um, you know, uh, HIV positive um, and their CD4 count is low, these are areas where you're going to look for other etiologic agents outside of pneumococcus and H flu. And like you alluded to, um, how do patient characteristics such as age or comorbidities affect the treatment options for CABP, the duration of treatment, and the patient journey? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, age doesn't necessarily, so patient characteristics always play a role. Um, age is one of them, but um, there's really this larger question. If you look at the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines, they sort of um, highlight this. And the first question really is, you know, whether this is inpatient or outpatient, but most notably outpatient is, does this patient have comorbidities or not? And if the answer is no, you know, you can really start looking at monotherapy with a macrolide if, or doxycycline if your resistance rates are not high. However, if this person does have comorbidities, that's where you're going to shift over away from example, for example, amoxicillin um, over to amoxclavulonate plus a macrolide. Um, so you're you know, those characteristics such as age and other comorbidities. And when we talk about comorbidities, things like hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, alcoholism, um, COPD, those sort of play the role of comorbidities. And that really will shift you away from an example from monotherapy with amacrylide or amoxicillin over to amoxclavulonate uh, plus, um, 
plus uh, a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone. So those are sort of the big areas that we will sort of um, see. Um, now, um, there are some newer agents as well that sort of would fit under that age and comorbidity. So such as, for example, the family and aromatocycline, two of those newer agents also work in the comorbidity side. And they were briefly mentioned in the recent guidelines, but not highlighted as strong. Now, the immune system status, so this idea of it being immunocompromised, or if you've actually had a recent admission to the, ICE, the hospital or the ICU, this is where um, multi-drug resistant gram negatives or resistant patterns for that show up. That may be where we then are going to do an extensive workup and look, as we talked about before, and look for things such as Pseudomonas, Staph aureus. Uh, maybe their immune status is so profound. This is actually not bacterial. This is fungal or, you know, it's, um, you know, pneumocystis um, uh, urechi or any of the other agents that may be present. So I think the immune system status really pushes you in a direction to hunt more for the organism. And depending what that organism, the treatment may be a lot more broad, but ideally comorbidities with age being one of those comorbidities is the big branch point of, um, you know, of the types of treatment. Now duration is five days in general. So unless you're looking at an immune or more complicated, non-traditional community acquired bacterial pneumonia, your duration is going to be five days, whether there is or is not the presence of comorbidities. So, so now how would uh, complications and or multi-organ involvement affect the treatment options for CABP? Yeah, so some complications will affect your treatment options. Um, Multi-organ involvement may as well. So um, the most common thing we see is whether, you know, for example, your pneumococcal disease is invasive or non-invasive. So if this is somebody who's going to have um, pneumococcus now in their bloodstream, so they're actually bacteremic and or septic, or it's going to be in another sterile site, plural space, CSF, and so forth, your treatment is no longer going to be your standard five days. That's now going to evolve into a longer treatment course in general. You know, if this is bacteremia, for example, it's going to be two weeks. If this is a complicated paranemonic effusion or an empyema, you're looking at probably a few weeks of therapy plus chest tube drainage. So really that idea of having multi-organ involvement may extend your therapy. So when we look at five days of treatment for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, that's when it's isolated to just the pulmonary side of things. So this is an alveolar infection. When it starts moving into the pleural space, bloodstream, you know, central nervous system, that's where your length of treatment is going to push, you know, outwards of two weeks and maybe IV only in some of those cases where oral agents are not going to play the biggest role, because obviously you can imagine it's going to be the CSF, you know, fluoroquinolone is not your first line of therapy for, uh, due to, you know, its ability to cross the blood brain barrier. Interesting. Um, and so how would you approach a patient with polymicrobial infection? Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the one thing we do see in community acquired pneumonia in general, it's going to be a single agent like pneumococcus or H flu driving it, but there are cases where you're going to see polymicrobial infections. Those are usually patients who have underlying structural lung disease like bronchiectasis um, or other forms of pulmonary scarring that may be from a recent hospitalization, or, you know, they are now falling into this category where they're not quite community acquired bacterial pneumonia, but they have contact with skilled nursing facilities. They may have other hardware in place like a tracheostomy. Me. Those are then going to highlight, you know, a red flag in your head to say, okay, this may be more than one organism. Generally, in that approach, it's going to be getting some diagnostics, just like we talked about before, but getting some diagnostics to really see what else is living down there. Um, most notably, where we tend to see that is again bronchiectasis and structural lung disease, where this may not be just H flu; it may be H flu plus pseudomonas or H flu and Staph aureus, or Staph aureus plus um, some other, you know, gram negatives or, or even anaerobes. I think that is going to play. You know, a bigger role is that approach is going to be, we have to get some sort of 
uh, microbiology to help drive that. Now, that's not always, you know, realistic. And sometimes those are the cases where we don't always have it, have it available, um, that those diagnostic and microbiologic data. And that's where empirically we might say, okay, in this case, I'm going to cover with an anaerobe and I might, you know, use something like clindamycin or the risk factors for pseudomonas are present, even though I didn't actually isolate it and I'm going to treat for pseudomonas. So again, those are often game time decisions, but I think the cornerstone of the approach to any patient with a polymicrobial infection is to find out all the bugs that are living there and use microbiology to drive your treatment choices. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sandrock. And for our listeners, we do have other parts of this podcast to come. Stay tuned for more.